Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 8 and 21 to 24. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say... You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord, as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand, and take also from the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So if you don't know me super well, I am Pastor Corey uh, here at Smoky Road, the lead pastor. I have four kids, um, ages seven, five, and our twins are going to be three here soon. And the older two kids were out this last week with Grammy, who's here with us this morning. They were having Grammy camp up in Ithaca, New York, which was real fun for them. Uh, They had a wonderful time getting up to all sorts of antics and having a lot more sugar than they're used to. Uh, But... uh, Grammy and Papa Bear got to deal with that rather than us. They had our, we got to talk with them uh, every evening via video chat and, and kind of hear what was going on. And uh, uh, the first day that we chatted with them, they had been playing hide and seek, I think, at one point. And Deacon told us that, unfortunately, he got a spider bite while he was hiding. Uh, and he was actually not super upset about the bite itself, more so upset that he did not get Spider-Man powers. He was telling me, he tried to climb up the walls, but nothing happened. And uh, so that was fortunate uh, lack of occurrence during that time. Meanwhile, Lydia and I actually got to have some uh, good home date nights over the week. Uh, the twins actually go to bed around 7.30, unlike the older two who like to stay up a little bit later. And so we even got to watch a whole movie one night. And guess what we watched? Spider-Man. <laughs> Spider-Man Across the spider versus one of the newest Spider-Man movies that came out recently. You may not be into comic book movies as much as I am, uh, but I thought Across the Spider-Verse was actually really fascinating. 
It's basically a story of one Spider-Man interacting with all sorts of other iterations of Spider-Man from different universes who all share kind of the same beats of the Spider-Man story. You know, many of them, they all got bit by a radioactive spider. But more than that, they also had these story elements of uh, a significant mentor loved one who ended up uh, dying because of their lack of action. Or also another beat of the Spider-Man story where there's a, a law enforcement person uh, who is connected with someone they care about who ends up giving their life because Spider-Man couldn't choose and, and, and figure out between do they save someone they care about or do something for the, the wider good. These are essential elements of that story. I share that because it's asking the question, are they all destined to replay the same events? And I think that's significant as we talk about Adam and Eve and these first humans in all of uh, creation history that are so often considered representatives for the rest of humanity throughout time. And we might ask the same questions for ourselves. Are we destined to follow in their footsteps all of, all of the time in every way, the same beats of their story? We're in this series in Genesis right now. We're going to be looking at major figures through the book of Genesis, real people with real faith and failures whose lives foreshadow a real hope that we find in Jesus. So today, we're going to talk about what do we learn from Adam and Eve. Do the events of their life define us, and if so, in what way? I have my work cut out for me with many of the messages for this these series. Because so many of the key figures in Genesis, they actually, their stories span several chapters. And it's kind of inconvenient to try to read that much text during a worship service, right? That's why even this morning, just with one chapter, we kind of took out some parts of the text. Hopefully you will read it on your own as well. And we'll talk about it some, some more this morning. Uh, but to get a representative slice of what do their... Um, what does their faith story tell us about what it means to live in relationship to God? So uh, their story is Adam and Eve is interspersed over three chapters. And it even then really only gives a glimpse of one major part of their life, an incredibly important portion. And I think that there are some key insights that we can note from their life, this little vignette that we receive in Genesis. So we're going to talk about their creation the curse they experienced from the fall, and the commitment of God in their life. So the first thing is creation. As we read last week, God made humanity on the sixth day as the pinnacle of his creative work. We find this in Genesis 1, verses 26 through 31. And Genesis 2, then, gives us kind of a different angle of the same story. We see that they are made in God's image. They are, uh, he calls them very good. But what does that image look like? We could do a whole message or maybe several messages just on that topic alone, but we're going to kind of gloss over it a little bit this morning so we can not get lost. Uh, don't lose the forest for the trees, so to speak, right? I want us to get a, just kind of a feel for their life and, and what these things mean. So a few things of what this means for them to be created in God's image. There's unity in their relationship with one another. As God made them his image, male and female, he created them. There's something profound about this uh, relationship together that they embody that is important, community about being uh, in God's image. The name Adam, Adam in Hebrew, is just a generic term for human. And after the split, then, they are called ish and ishah, man and woman. 
in some important way they represent this. There's this beauty of community, unity, being completely vulnerable with each other, right? Because they are naked and unashamed. I've often said this in talking about the marriage relationship. It's true of, of really any of our friendships as well. When we are vulnerable with one another, we gain this unique ability in each other's lives to be able to speak uh, both incredible encouragement and life over someone when you see them really and truly, especially in the marriage relationship, you see like all of someone. You also have the ability to be, speak things that can be really harmful to the other person if you're not careful with your words. Right? There's something profound about this relationship that they embody, being naked and unashamed and vulnerable and able to, uh, to live that way without shame. There's also purpose to their life. In verse 28 of chapter 1, they are blessed to be fruitful and to fill the earth and tasked to rule the earth, uh, cultivating it. Some people bristle at that language of rule, dominion there, but I think it's important for us to see it in context. God has been gradually creating order out of the chaos and the darkness. That's the whole the creation story here. It's been creating from the tohu vavohu, the formlessness and void. Some people translate it as the wild and waste. He's been making more and more order out of that chaos. And while he calls creation good, he notice, notably does not get rid of all of the wild and the waste. There's still darkness. There's still deep waters. There's still wilderness. And so as Adam and Eve are tasked to cultivate this, they, some specific things are mentioned that they should garden the area, right? Uh, Adam is given the task of naming all the animals. There's this order, this further ordering of uh, the created world that is being given here. And there's also this unique dependence that they have, right? This relationship with God, that God gives them all sorts of plants to eat. He feeds them generously. He gives them uh, ways to be for their provision. And they have this unique relationship of being a uh, it being necessary for them to rely on his instruction specifically. There's only one tree they're not supposed to eat from. You remember which tree is that? They actually they can't eat from the tree of, of life that's in the garden, but it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they are prevented from eating from. Now, why that tree? Why would not be allowed to eat from that tree? Um, just a quick word study on that. So, good and evil. Good here is tov, which we've already heard that word several times in Genesis 1. When God created, he saw, he saw that it was tov, good. He calls this good, not necessarily in a, the moral sense, but he sees that it's pleasing, it is appropriate, it is right. And then wara, for, for evil there, uh, we again sometimes think of that in moral categories, but it can also bring to mind what is inappropriate, what is dangerous, what is destructive in the world. I think that's kind of important here as we think about this tree and why it's so important here. For us adults, we, uh, many of us know that there are levels of pleasure and pain in the world that are far beyond what a child should experience. They're not ready yet for that. Um, they will experience things at some point in their life. They'll learn from experience at some point. And yet we know intuitively at some point in their life, we just want them to trust us, right? Trust what we say. Don't do this. Do this. It's for your good, right? They have this sort of 
uh, relationship with the adult in their life to trust what is good so that they can learn in due time that thing. This is the best way that I can find out to, to think of why uh, God didn't want Adam and Eve to eat from this tree. They wanted Adam, he wanted Adam and Eve to trust him rather than experience what they weren't ready for. But, as we know, things go south. Brings us to the curse. I remember late one night, uh, early in our time in Goshen, or previously to this, uh, we came back from a small group meeting. It was around 9.30 or 10. And it was dark by that point. I was uh, driving our newly bought van. We had just bought our, our new minivan. I don't know if I was getting used to the larger vehicle still or what, um, but I, as we were driving into the garage, I just hit the center pillar, like the, uh, the in between the, the double car garage there. Totally smashed up the brick. I wasn't going, but maybe like I don't know, two miles per hour. <laughs> At that point, I was going slow, but it did enough damage that the brick facade started uh, breaking away. It bent up the, um, the frame of the, the garage doors there. And the worst part about it was it was a Saturday night, and the parsonage was right next to the church. It was unavoidable that the next day everyone was going to see the damage to the, the garage there. And so while it was just a mistake, just a thing that happened, I just had this intense embarrassment. Is there anything that I can do to avoid people seeing what just happened here? And there was nothing. Uh, the, the garage was bent up to such a degree we couldn't even close the door. It was just, it was a mess. I, all I wanted to do was to run and hide, but I couldn't do that. It's kind of um, interesting to me, those things in our life that could happen just like in a split second, right? Whether they are a mistake that we made, whether it would be called sin or not, there are things that happen that just impact us for months afterwards or weeks or sometimes longer, something that happens so quickly. In the aftermath of these sorts of events, we always find ourselves asking questions to the effect of like, what could I have done differently in that scenario, right? Or how did I not see that coming? Adam and Eve were given one prohibition, one thing not to do. They could eat from any tree in the garden, just not that one. They didn't eat it. They got tricked by the serpent. Right? They, they fell for the lie. And that decision, made in just a moment, had profound, lasting impact. And sin, like this, this disobedience, is so dangerous, it unmakes us undoes the, that process of creation. I tend to read the curses in Genesis uh, chapter 3 as being more descriptive, maybe than declarative, that the, the choice to disobey ruptured humanity's relationship with God, with each other, and with creation. And so God in these curses is describing the consequences of their action, of what happened afterwards. They were made for meaningful relationship with each other, to support, to protect, to encourage one another. But apart from God, we'll seek to do like they did, to blame one another. They kept pointing fingers at each other. It wasn't my fault. It was their part. To dominate one another. To consume one another. We're made for meaningful work and partnership with God. To be fruitful. To rule. To cultivate. But as we separate ourselves from God, we find it all to be toil and hardship. Eve has this consequence of uh, her pain and childbirth and labor is going to be multiplied. For Adam, as he tills the ground, it's going to be that much more difficult 
the work, the ground that he was given. It's all toil and hardship. Work existed before the fall, right? It's not a bad thing, but it is made to be um, so much more difficult. Most of all, we were made for meaningful relationships with God. But our knowledge of our own vulnerability seems to produce in us this kind of fear and shame so that either we try to hide from God anything that feels vulnerable, anything in our power at least, or we assure ourselves that we don't need him. We try to go and do it by ourselves. This temptation that is offered here is a hollow promise, right? The serpent tells them that they will become like God, knowing good and evil. Eating the fruit, then, it may grant them discernment of good and evil, but it's powerless to counter the effects of this condition. I heard someone say it one time, it's like, if a man steps out of an airplane at 20,000 feet with no parachute, you could say that he's become like the pilot, having a sense of altitude and gravity at, at that altitude, but he would be completely incapable of maintaining his altitude or avoiding the effects of gravity. Knowing the difference between good and the beautiful versus the vile and the destructive doesn't give us the faithfulness or the moral fortitude to choose the good. Just knowing it doesn't make us able to live by it. Apart from God, whose very breath made our being out of the dirt, we will simply return to the dust of the earth. We were created for good, Sin's curse threatened it all, but the story isn't over yet. We also see God's commitment. Even as things seem dire here, we see glimmers of hope. In verse 15, God tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is sometimes referred to as the, the proto-euangelion. The first gospel, it's this foreshadowing of Christ, that there will come one through the line of Adam and Eve that will uh, finally crush the work of the servant of the enemy. So even in this consequence, see, we see this hint that God yet has a plan of hope for his people. We also get this poignant scene after the pronouncement of these curses where first Adam gives his wife a name, Eve, the mother of all the living. Then God gives both of them some proper clothes afterwards. They try to make some out of fig leaves. He gives them some clothes. So even in brokenness, Adam and Eve, they maintain their love and relationship. And God does not stop being generous and compassionate to his people. And we even see a glimmer of hope in Adam and Eve's expulsion from the garden. God says he wants to cut them off from the tree of life so they will not live forever, which seems harsh, right? He's not being vindictive here. God doesn't want them to live forever in their broken state. So he sends them out and places a cherubim with a flaming sword to guard the way. right? Now, I, I used to read that phrase, guard the way, as this uh, God setting up watchmen to prevent Adam and Eve from coming back, trying to get back in. But the opposite of that proves true as well, that God intended to guard the way against the forces of the enemy so that we may yet have access to God and return to him. I say this because later, 
when God gave the Israelites special instructions about setting up the tabernacle, the temple. He gave special instruction about crafting an image of two cherubim on top of the Ark of the Covenant, representing his presence in the Holy of Holies. It's this image of returning to the garden. right? It was under these cherubim that the blood would be sprinkled as a sign of the reconciled relationship between people and God, the ultimate hope of one day returning to his presence and fullness. So this whole tabernacle system and temple system was an image and symbol of the way back to God. God keeps the way that we might be reconciled. So in the lives of Adam and Eve, we do already see the seeds of humanity's story, created in God's image, unmade through the curse of sin, and yet held in the hope of God's commitment, covenant, love. And that hope is made tangible in Jesus. Jesus is the new Adam. Hebrews 1.3, we were starting in, in the, the book of Hebrews for adult Bible study now. Last week, or maybe it was two weeks ago, reading about Jesus being the exact representation of God being, more than just the image of God, but his exact image and representation. We read elsewhere ways in which he rehashes. There's so many themes in the gospel stories of ways that he relives the story, both of Adam and Eve, but also uh, Israel itself. He lays down his life for the world. There's this love and intimacy that he cares so much for others that he would lay down his life to those he loves. He brings life and order into the world just by speaking. He speaks a word and people are healed. He, he speaks a word and the storms are stilled, right? And guard, God guards the way to the tree of life. And so Jesus is the way that truth and life in that way, right? We also see that Jesus who's loved by uh, the Father, he does nothing without being in submission to the Father as well. He knows the ways of the Father. Jesus is also the snake crusher. He is the seed of Eve, the offspring of Eve who was struck on the heel but who crushes the serpent's head, who took on all of the weight and consequence of sin. He's despised and rejected, opposed in his purpose, ultimately abandoned on the cross and yet is resurrected, is glorified, and seated at the right hand of the Father. All of the consequences, the unmaking of the created order that happens because of sin. He remakes, recreates, conquers the powers of sin. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruit of humanity's recreation. And in Jesus, we have found the way home. Is the way, the truth, the life. You know, it can be uh, so easy for us to identify with Adam and Eve, feeling defined by our past mistakes, feeling naturally inclined to keep choosing the same false comforts that we've had in our life, to try to do things on our own. Like Proverbs says, it's like a dog returning to its vomit. So do we do the same foolish things again and again. But it's not our story anymore. Our story is not defined by the lives of Adam and Eve, but by the life of Jesus, who has brought us something new, a new hope. And it's because of Jesus that we are not destined to a life of curse 
and alienation, but we can find new life. Amen? Let's pray. Our Lord, we are so thankful for Jesus. We're thankful that you have not left us alone in this world. That even when we chose and continue to choose to try to do things on our own, when we choose out of our own fear and anxiety, fearing things other than you more than you, fail to trust you. That we go to false comforts, both familiar and new. By anything other than you to give us some sense of stability. We thank you that you never let us go. That even when you are disappointed, that you do not give up on us. You yet love us and are committed to us. Your mercies are new every morning. And that you have gone to the utter depths to display your love and care for us, to rescue us from the grip of sin. So we pray, Lord, that we might see you and respond to you with our faithful yes. Would you help us in the power of your spirit?